0: In the first chapter of the book of John, verse 42, the Lord renamed Simon son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah is renamed Cephas, or Rock, which English rendition is Peter. Therefore, we understand Simon to now be called Simon Peter, or simply just Peter. Peter understood Jesus really well when Jesus was walking with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, which is in the Golan Heights and is now a nature reserve called Banya's, Beautiful place, densely wooded and with babbling brooks and lovely waterfalls. And the Lord turned and asked his disciples, saying... "'Whom do men say that I am?' And they said, "'Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets.' And he looked to his disciples and said, "'Okay, and you, my friends, whom do you say that I am?' And Simon Peter took his opportunity to bear testimony directly to the Lord. Can you imagine such an opportunity to tell the Son of God to his face that he's divine and that he took away the sins of the world?' After Peter said these things, the Lord said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Some people, the Catholics, for example, venerate Peter, because they think this scripture means that the church was literally meant to be built upon Peter the person, or in other words, the Catholics consider Peter their first pope, and they've traced all the other popes down the line, starting with Peter, after which it was Linus, Anacletus, Clement, and so on. But in our faith tradition— We believe this passage was pointing to a principle, not a person. We believe you must come to know the majesty and the divinity of Christ on your own, without regard to what your parents say, what your friends say. It's not that what they have to say isn't probably true. Most of us were raised in the church, but borrowing your parents' testimony will only get you so far. Eventually, if you really are going to live a life rooted in this gospel, you'll have to come to know the Lord yourself in the same way that Peter knew him personally. In the spirit of knowing Christ for myself, I've been redefining gospel terms according to my own experience and understanding. This isn't a formal thing. It's just a mental and spiritual exercise. I've asked myself, for example, how do I experience God's mercy? How do I, in my actual everyday life, feel God's grace? How do I understand the atonement, etc.? The atonement has healing and cleansing properties, but in my everyday experience, I sense it as more of a fearlessness. It's almost like here in my mortal journey as I'm sorting out my salvation, I am liberated to make my decisions and I'm free to face trials and afflictions without fear because the atonement fuels me. No matter what happens, it's all in the name of growing, trying, experiencing, learning. So I can face my life boldly and embrace all the different phases. I can accept the good and the bad and all that comes my way without fear. The atonement, after all, doesn't have to do merely with sin. The Book of Alma says the atonement allows us to face all of life's challenges, sicknesses, weaknesses, temptations, trials, and all manner of infirmity. One of my friends, Amy, is not LDS. She's a great person. She has this crippling fear problem, though. So she's not good at embracing both the good and the bad in life, she's happy to embrace the good. But when difficulties come, or when life calls her to move into a new phase of growth, she very often rejects it. There's a novelist who says, life is a process of becoming. It's a combination of states we have to go through. And where people fail is that they wish to elect a state and remain in it. But remaining in a state is the opposite of living. Remaining in one state is a kind of death. My friend Amy, her ruling desire is to remain precisely where she is. She mourns every pound she gains, every gray hair, and she's not embracing these new changes in life the same way that most of my other friends are. As time strips her of these youthful characteristics upon which she's built her entire identity, she mourns these losses one by one. And it's a fascinating thing the way we sometimes get stuck in one phase like that because life has so many lessons to teach. Why cling to one phase and refuse to learn and grow? It's as though sometimes we yearn to go back to the garden, as though moving through life unchanged is some kind of ethical pinnacle or ultimate goal. But it isn't. The Garden of Eden, where things remain perfect and unchanged, that was the beginning of our story. It was never meant to be the ending. Bruce C. Hafen said, I have come to feel that the life of Christ is the story of giving the atonement, and the story of Adam and Eve is the story of receiving the atonement amid the sometimes formidable oppositions of mortality. Because of the atonement, we can learn from our experiences without being condemned by them. And receiving the atonement, as Adam and Eve did, is not just a doctrine about erasing black marks. It is the core doctrine that allows human development. Thus, Christ's sacrifice did not just return our first parents to an Eden of innocence. That would be a story with no plot and no character. Character growth, Rather, they left the garden holding on to each other and moving forward together into a tumultuous world. James E. Talmadge observed, "...but for the opportunity thus given, the spirits of God's offspring would have remained forever in a state of innocent childhood, sinless through no effort of their own, negatively saved, not from sin but from the opportunity of meeting sin, incapable of winning the honors of victory because prevented from taking part in the conflict." I recently heard a comment by a celebrity in her 50s, she said people always want me to cover up my age, but she retorts back to them, I'm I'm proud of my age, I've waited a long time for these wrinkles. We could take a page out of that book. We could all learn to embrace change a little better, and not just physical changes. More importantly, as life throws us curveballs, we can respond fearlessly because the Lord wants us to maximize this mortal opportunity. We don't have to fear failure. Failures will come more often than successes will, and that's to be expected. Some say failure has more to teach us, after all, than success does. And as long as we, in the words of Joseph B. Worthlin embrace life with an attitude of, quote, come what may and love it, we can't ultimately fail. The Lord took ultimate failure away from us when he suffered in Gethsemane and descended beneath all things to know precisely how to minister to us and empower us in our weakness. The world says tigers don't change their stripes. And I've always resented that expression. I just don't think it's true. I think we do change. And in fact, the Lord sent us to earth in order to grow and change. The rendering of the Greek word for repentance into English is a change of heart and mind. So when our leaders call upon us to repent, they're not encouraging us to wallow in our guilt. They're saying the opposite. They're saying, let every day be a new day. Let bygones be bygones. Today be better than you were yesterday. Repentance is nothing more than a call to consistently embrace change. In my early 20s, I underwent a faith crisis, if you will, though I don't especially appreciate that term because I think doubt is natural and healthy and even productive. And I think in our faith tradition, we... We would do well to decriminalize doubt, but nevertheless, for purposes of simplicity and recognizable terms, let's call it a faith crisis. So when coming out of this faith crisis and first making steps toward reactivity into the church, I made a habit of praying every Saturday night because I knew I'd be going to church in the morning and I didn't want to partake of the sacrament unworthily. So I'd ask almost a permission on the weeks that I'd regressed on the battlefield of temptation. I'd say in this weekly prayer, in so many words, okay, so technically I failed this week, but I'd love the privilege of taking sacrament in the morning. Would that be okay? And this feeling would wash over me. And I came to recognize that as a part of the atonement. That was the Lord saying, you don't have to be perfect. Just keep on trying. Sometimes I'd fast and pray thinking I'd need to plead with the Lord a little bit, as if he's some rigid taskmaster who needs coaxing to accept me or something. And I'd be surprised time and time again when only seconds into these prayers of permission to continue my discipleship, that feeling would come again, just this wall of warmth affirming that I was still called to the work, so to speak, of continuing my spiritual education. DNC 310 says, Remember, God is merciful, and thou hast done that which is contrary to the commandment which I gave you, but thou art still chosen and art again called to the work." I'm reminded of Matthew 11. Leading up to verses 5 and 6, the Lord is saying, I am he who heals. Through me the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended. I find it interesting that he brings up in that moment, he brings up healing and then enjoins us not to be offended. What does taking offense have to do with being healed? What blind or broken person would be too offended to come unto Christ to be healed? But turns out we do it all the time. We become offended by ourselves and we wither away, wallowing in self-loathing, unsure whether we're still, so to speak, called to the work. If you click the hyperlink on that word in verse 6 of Matthew 11, you click the word offended, it takes you to Isaiah eight fifteen, which says, And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken. So that's kind of the definition of offended, if you will. I get the picture in my mind of a person who, in response to sin, just gives up, just stumbles, falls into a depression of guilt and shame and refuses to be healed. Why? Because we offend ourselves. We insist, based on our own judgment, that we're not good enough to be healed. Instead of asking the Lord each week before we take the sacrament, or perhaps asking him daily as we continue our mortal journey, what do you, Lord, what do you say? Are my feeble efforts acceptable? Am I still called to the work? It's reminiscent of what Christ himself asked his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. It seems that when you ask the Lord directly for encouragement, you will feel acceptance wash over you like a wave. I have a friend named Anna who lives in Dallas. She's an ex-member who struggles with an addiction. And when I inquire about her plans to come back to church, she insists she has every intention, and when she gets her habits under control, she'll feel confident enough to come back to church activity. It sounds very familiar. Many people leave the church because they don't feel worthy or they don't feel good enough. Anna sees her addiction as a barrier to entry into the kingdom of God. She has grossly underestimated God's healing power and his willingness to administer her in imperfections. She perhaps doesn't trust that God's love and his mercy are expansive enough to encompass her if she sees a a few bad habits as a stumbling block to her spiritual progress. But who among us doesn't have a few bad habits? If we all waited for some semblance of perceived perfection before we acquiesced to church attendance, then there would surely be no church to attend at all. Pews the whole world over would remain completely unoccupied. As Abigail Van Buren puts it, church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. Chloe Gooden says, we tend to either minimize our sins or overrate our sins, but maybe we should just realize that sin is sin and that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but that thankfully God's love is bigger than it all. Joseph Smith said, our heavenly father is more liberal in his views and boundless in his mercy than we are ready to believe or receive. Sometimes we treat religion like a checklist and checklists feel good. Every tick and every box down the list feels like accomplishment and satisfaction. The problem is, religion isn't meant to be a checklist. To reduce something complicated and majestic into something glib and familiar to us just for our own comfort is really misuse and almost exploitation. The LDS scholar Terrell Givens says, The problem with institutional religion, even one divinely restored, is the temptation it affords us to make our own spirituality the goal. Rules, standards, and commandments all provide us with the means of measuring our own progress and our own prospects for happiness but that is not discipleship that is pious self-interest d quote dnc 64 7 says i the lord forgive sins unto those who confess their sins before me wherefore i say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the lord for there remaineth in him the greater sin this passage i would like to apply to self as well if God is prepared to forgive you and you're unwilling to forgive yourself for something, isn't that the worse sin than whatever sin you committed that put you in a spiral of guilt in the first place? I hate to pick on my friend Anna again, but the Lord is willing to have her here. He wants her here. The problem is she's unwilling to grant herself the acceptance she would need to come back to church activity. And that's a way bigger problem than her addictive behaviors. She says her religious progress is conditioned upon X, Y, and Z, but the Lord says no such thing. He says we're all welcome here. Then again, the church isn't the only way to find spiritual nourishment. So I genuinely hope that if she does need a leave of absence from the church for a time, then she won't call off her search for Christ entirely, that she'll simply take this search elsewhere, and if and when she sees fit to come back to church activities, she'll have an enhanced and better-rounded perspective to contribute to our membership. Elder Holland says, "'However many chances you think you have missed, however many mistakes you feel you have made, or talents you think you don't have, or however far from home and family and God you feel you have traveled, I testify that you have not traveled beyond the reach of divine love. It is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement shines.'" He further says, My beloved brothers and sisters, I testify that forgiving and forsaking offenses, old or new, is central to the grandeur of the atonement of Jesus Christ. When God has forgiven us, which he is so eternally anxious to do, may we have the good sense to let go, walk away, and let the past be the past. It is not right to leave open or to reopen some wound that the Son of God himself died to heal. End quote. I'd like to recommend a few ways that we can maintain our faith and our self-confidence, even in the face of doubts, including self-doubt. One thing that can increase our self-confidence is the avoidance of what Scripture calls hypocrisy. But before I read you a biblical excerpt on this subject, I'd like to first define terms because hypocrisy is a term we tend to associate with condemnation, and I'd like to define it in terms of a condition requiring healing allow me to explain there's an lds journalist named jane Clayson johnson who had a young women calling a few years ago and as a woman who struggled with depression herself sister johnson noticed many of her young women were struggling with depression the girls were asked to do an exercise one day that sister johnson called the box each girl was given a stack of magazines and a shoebox, and she was instructed to cut out and glue to the outside of the box images that depicted how the young women acted in public so her public persona, or perhaps the persona she depicted uh, in social media, because very often our social media images are more outward image. And then each girl was instructed to glue to the inside of the box images more reflective of her inward person, or who that woman is behind closed doors. Sister Johnson was shocked when the women whose outward and inward disparities were most dramatic, or in other words, the women whose outward side and inward side were most different, were the same young women who tended to spiral into depressions. And this was the first time Sister Johnson had connected hypocrisy, so to speak, with the condition of depression. In Matthew 23, the Lord points to a connection between hypocrisy and healing, indicating that hypocrisy is a condition that desperately needs the healing power of the atonement. I'll read you some verses from Matthew 23, and I'd like you to look for the rebuking of hypocrisy and the Lord's invitation to come to him to be healed from this detrimental condition. Woe unto you, you hypocrites! You pay your tithes but omit the weightier matters of the law. Woe unto you, you hypocrites, for ye may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within are full of extortion and excess. Woe unto you, you hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones, and all uncleanness. How often would I have gathered you together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. Do you hear mourning in his voice when he says woe unto you? I used to hear condemnation in that phrase, but now that I've identified hypocrisy as a condition in need of love and healing, I now hear mourning in that phrase instead of a rebuke. And now that social media reigns supreme, hypocrisy is a condition we all could be accused of. If we had to distill American culture down to just one single word, I think the word hypocrisy could almost do nicely. Thanks to all the various technologies available to us, we are even more capable than previous generations to be one person outwardly and another person inwardly. Our social media accounts are veritable monuments to our self-image and ego and pride. Very often our posts distort reality by filtering how we really look or leaving out key facts. A smiling morning selfie doesn't reveal, for example, how you might have cried yourself to sleep last night or how you failed a test yesterday. But we don't typically post when we have bad days because like the Pharisees of old, we're so intent on only exhibiting that one sliver of ourselves that we feel the public will accept. We don't want to invite scrutiny or criticism, so we only show a portion of ourselves. And technically, that's hypocrisy. And yet, I don't hear condemnation in Matthew 23. I hear the Lord beckoning to heal us. How often I would gather you, he says. In other words, how often you could have come to me to heal that disharmony, that disparity between the outward and the inward. If we have an actual grasp on the Lord's willingness to choose us despite our imperfections, then we won't feel that awful addictive compulsion to constantly curate our image and carefully hide our flaws Self-help guru Brene Brown says we can stand inside our own story and proudly own it, regardless of how messy that story can sometimes be. Another thing I think we could do better to promote more faith and self-acceptance has to do with Dieter F. Uchtdorf's 2013 talk called What is Truth? This talk likens the gospel to an elephant, and I love this concept because the gospel really is so huge and so complex that at any given point in time, here we are, tiny humans next to this towering elephant, and we can't see the top of his head or his other side. He's just too big, and so we have to get familiar with the gospel one little body part at a time, and thanks to the atonement, we can take our time familiarizing ourselves because the Lord in his mercy gives us plenty of time on this earth to figure things out. We can't expect when we're 20 or 30 or at some pre-established point in time that we'll have it perfectly down yet. Because it simply just takes so long. And this is a concept we would do well to remember and teach our youth because very often youth step away, not just from the church, but from religion and spirituality generally because they figure they failed. They figure if they don't have religion down by the time they're 18 or 22 or however old, then they've flunked out of the program and they just call it quits. And I think that can often come about because of the way the church focuses on worthiness and on keeping the commandments. Worthiness and commandments are two words that have been so overused they've almost entirely lost their meaning. And to the extent that they do conjure a picture in our minds, that picture will typically be something ugly and guilty and shameful. I have almost zero patience with those words at this point because we're so insistent and impatient about obedience that these concepts have become unoriginal at least and damaging at most. Why don't we focus more on the reality that strict obedience is something that comes naturally over a great deal of time without you having to desperately will yourself to do this or abstain from that? Why don't we have more patience with ourselves and allow some of the fruits of the spirit to develop slowly like they do in nature? Have you ever watched a time-lapse video of a fruit flowering and then budding and then ultimately coloring and rounding out to fullness? It takes a long time. Galatians 5.22 says, forbearance and self-control are fruits of the spirit. Doesn't that choice of wording, calling something a fruit, indicate that before you arrive at a point of strict self-control, complete forbearance, that will take time and it will progress moment by moment. And yet we preach from the pulpit as though you should be at a place of unyielding obedience in every category of your spiritual life at all times or else, shame on you, you second-class disciple, which is such hypocrisy because these same people who so insistently preach strict obedience, you can't tell me they're on their spiritual A-game. The sure sign of a disciple is the emphasis that they're not where they want to be spiritually. It's similar to that Socrates quote, the only true wisdom is the realization that you know nothing. Well, spirituality works a similar way. You're only a true disciple. The minute you realize you're worlds away from where you would like to be spiritually. And so the people pearl clutching and feigning perfection were tempted to look at them and compare and say, wow, I'm, I'm not that self-assured. They must be holier than I am. They must have a handle on things better than I do. I must not belong here. But that's wrong. Those people are exhibiting sure signs of superficiality and hypocrisy. And if we do compare ourselves to them, which we shouldn't, but if we did, we shouldn't come out on the bottom of that analysis. I hate that the one-size-fits-all Mormonism pushes out innovation. Creative people, diverse people, talented people are looking around at church and saying, I don't fit in here. And then they're leaving. And it's such a shame because then we end up retaining in our membership only that same prototype. We have so many carbon copy Mormons. The reality is life is long. They say it's short, but it's not. It's long. And you're just not going to have every single fruit of the Spirit when you're a teen or a young adult. You may not have any fruits of the Spirit as a young adult. You may just be putting roots down by that time because you simply haven't had the benefit of time yet to really dig in and explore that gospel elephant. So my encouragement is to give yourself the time and the space to explore. Don't be too quick to zero in on areas of confusion or imperfection. The Apostle Paul described a thorn in his side. In 2 Corinthians twelve seven to 9 There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. And for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We see similar verbiage in 2 Nephi 4.17. This is sometimes called the Psalm of Nephi because he's lamenting. He says, Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, and my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. It's clear from these passages that even the most elect among us, Paul, Nephi, Struggle with persistent sins and temptations that rack us with torment and guilt. And my opinion is that we each have a thorn in our side or several. I have a few. And these thorns can be a little different for everyone, but we can all relate to Nephi when he talks about sins and temptations because even when you're not actively succumbing to certain sins, the temptation is lurking there like a tiger in a cage. And you just know if you give that tiger any space for escape, he's coming after you. I also find it interesting that Paul said the Lord intentionally had beset him with that demon, that messenger of Satan. And the Lord could have easily removed this heckler, but he didn't. Paul said the reason God didn't remove this demon was that he wanted Paul to understand grace. He wanted Paul to understand that notwithstanding Paul's imperfections, God's grace was sufficient. And Paul got the message. He went on to be such a huge champion of grace that if you had to describe his ministry in one word, it would be grace. In all the Pauline writings of the Bible— Galatians, Thessalonians, Ephesians, uh, Paul mentions grace 68 times. That's how important this, this concept was to him. And now in our faith tradition, we don't tend to emphasize grace, at least not in those actual terms. We tend to speak of the atonement, and one portion of the atonement is grace. So we could consider those two concepts synonymous. Grace is a tough thing to define, but it's something you know when you see it or feel it. I heard an Anne Lamont quote the other day, and she said, The grace of God meets you where you are, but it doesn't leave you where it finds you. Isn't that so nice? Grace to me feels like I'm ennobled and humbled. At the same time, I feel recognized and aggrandized while simultaneously brought to my knees with gratitude. When you encounter grace in your life, you know unmistakably that God has left his 99 to personally find you. Terrell Givens describes the atonement as the continual re-education of the heart. And so to return to the analogy of the elephant, if that elephant is made up of a million thou shalts and thou shalt nots and beautiful principles and ennobling truths, the atonement powers that examination. And in that process, the Lord will reveal himself to us a little bit at a time. Part of the arrangement we've made with the Lord is we agree to continue learning and searching. And it doesn't have to be conventional searching either. We could examine the elephant in a typical church setting or seek learning out of books and, and from other reliable sources, like we're told in DNC and 88-118. The important thing is just to never step away, not because of hellfire or brimstone or whatever, but simply because stepping away from your religious examination entirely removes the Spirit's ability to comfort you and illuminate you. And I can tell you from personal experience that stepping away entirely, not just from the church, but simply when you call off your search for Christ entirely for whatever reason, guilt or shame or just emotional exhaustion, you may think that taking a break will energize you. I haven't found that to be the case. I've gone through phases of just mentally shutting off all religious thought, thinking a break could be good for me, and it's only led to darkness. And And to me, worthiness, this word we tend to associate with how dutifully we run our religious checklist, has nothing to do with the checklist at all. To me, worthiness is how doggedly you knock and seek and search. For me, even in days when I struggled with conformity to the word of wisdom and, and took backward steps in terms of my checklist, I still prayed, read scriptures and ensign, and notwithstanding my, you know, what? Pharisee Mormons would probably call my unworthiness. I felt direct access to heaven's powers, even during those times when technically I was sinning, according to the temple recommend questions. And yet here was the Holy Ghost lighting me up like Christmas. So, When we rattle off scriptures like D&C 121-36 about our priesthood power inseparably connected to our personal righteousness, clearly the Lord must define righteousness as much more than just word of wisdom or how dutifully we're abstaining from things, the way the the membership of the church has led us to believe. They would say that stuff is very important and foundational. D&C 130-23 tells us the Holy Ghost will only tarry with us according to our worthiness, Well, then we need to reconceptualize what worthiness means because the Holy Ghost has tarried with me even when I've broken commandments. So obviously our our desire has more to do with our worthiness than our actual behavior. My desire to do good and my study of the gospel has never faltered. And so that's what I've come to associate with worthiness, simply my desire to do good and seek truth because that's been my only constant, whereas my behavior itself has been up and down. And yet the Spirit hasn't left me. That's an indication of worthiness, right? Even our brother, the prophet Joseph, struggled with weaknesses of the flesh. In 1843, he said, The burdens which roll upon me are very great. My persecutors allow me no rest, and I find that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Although I was called of my Heavenly Father to lay the foundation of the kingdom in this dispensation, I'm subject to like passions as other men, like the prophets of olden times. And then he lets on that his weaknesses help activate his compassion and empathy for others because he says, Notwithstanding my weaknesses, I'm under the necessity of bearing the infirmities of others. And the beautiful thing about the way I conceptualize worthiness is that if we hit a snag, a persistent sin or an area of confusion, we can walk it down a few feet and explore somewhere else on the gospel elephant instead of insisting that we get this one portion right before we liberate ourselves to progress on down the line. And we should erase from our psyches the fear that if we get hung up on certain sins, then we're not qualified to continue our search or attend church or worship in whatever way we feel is best. Nowhere in scripture does it say that we need to be perfect before we're qualified to continue our journey of discipleship even Matthew five forty-eight: be ye therefore perfect as your father in heaven is perfect technically that's a mistranslation the Greek actually uses the word esesthe which means you will be not the command form be the way it's reflected in the text and the word perfect in Greek teleoi actually means seen through to its end so the text would be more accurate if it said you will be perfect in time if you see things through to the end not be perfect that's a pretty dramatic oversimplification In his BYU devotional, Brother Richard Sudweeks refers to errant sins as stray cats. He says there's a difference between having a stray cat pass through your yard every so often and then feeding that cat and nurturing that cat and inviting it to linger. An odd sin or thought or temptation here and there will happen, and it's when we make a place for it that we ought to become concerned. He says sins are like stray cats that trespass across our yards. You may not be successful in keeping them out completely, but an isolated incident will not do much harm unless you invite it to linger and treat it as a welcome guest rather than as an intruder. Do not feed these strangers. Do not nurture a friendship with them. Do not entertain them. Treat them as intruders and take affirmative steps to avoid mingling with them. Addiction counselors use similar language. Occasional mistakes are simply mistakes, but when our actions become calcified into a habit, that's when we know we've made a choice. When our brother in Christ, the Apostle Paul, was imprisoned by the evil Roman Emperor Nero, who was notorious for persecuting Christians, somewhere around 64 AD he wrote his final epistle to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 6-7. Paul says to Timothy, the time for my departure is near. He knew Nero would be beheading him very soon, and he said, but I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Notice he didn't say, I did everything perfect, not so. As we know, he had a thorn in his flesh till the day he died, for all we know. But he endured to the end, and he never gave up. And that's the trick, and that's the atonement fueling us in our lives, assuring us that as long as we keep fighting to the end, God's grace will be sufficient for us. Remember Bruce C. Hafen's words, the atonement doesn't restore us to an Eden of innocence. It doesn't remove our black marks. That would be regressive. In that case, if we wanted to return to Eden, where would be our character growth? Where would be our education? We're meant to come to mortality, bungle this thing a little bit, fail, fall, and then go home battered and bruised but with a lot of experience under our belt and with a precious and hard-won education in tow, an education we truly couldn't get any other way. Marjorie Hinckley summarizes rather well the way we can use the atonement to live life to the fullest and fearlessly work out our salvation. She said, I don't want to drive up to the pearly gates in a shiny sports car wearing beautifully tailored clothes, my hair expertly coiffed, and with long, perfectly manicured fingernails. I want to drive up in a station wagon that has mud on the wheels from taking kids to scout camp. I want to be there with a smudge of peanut butter on my shirt from making sandwiches for my sick neighbor's children. I want to be there with a little dirt under my fingernails from helping to weed someone's garden. I want to be there with children's sticky kisses on my cheeks and the tears of a friend on my shoulder. I want the Lord to know I was really here and that I really lived." As for the guilt and the shame we can sometimes associate with gospel living, let's remember what Harry Emerson Fosdick once wrote. Some Christians carry their religion on their backs as though it is a burden they must bear. At times it grows heavy, and they become tempted to lay it down. But real Christians do not carry their religion. Their religion carries them. It is not weight. It is wings. It lifts them up. It sees them over hard places. It makes the universe seem friendly and life purposeful, hope real, sacrifice worthwhile. It sets them free from fear, futility, discouragement, and sin. You can know a real Christian when you see one by his buoyancy. And lastly, one of my favorite people, Carol Lynn Pearson, she says, What I have learned is that religion misunderstood will leave you feeling unworthy and condemned and dismissed, and religion properly understood will leave you feeling confident, capable, and cleansed. If you enjoyed this episode, please contact us at mormonprogram at gmail.com. That's m-o-r-e-m-o-n program at gmail.com. We appreciate your input.